Thank you. Well, we're going to turn now to our uh, to the God's Word, and if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke sixteen one through nine, uh, this is the parable of the shrewd manager, and I'm actually your uh, scripture reader this morning. So, will you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Again, we're in Luke sixteen one through nine. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. A passage that deserves no explanation. I'm going to close in prayer, a blessing on you all. Use money to gain friends, right? Worst piece of advice I've ever heard in my life. Oh, so good. Well, if you missed last week, um, we're taking two weeks uh, to look at Jesus' teachings on the topic of money and possessions in Luke's gospel. So I, I kind of I skipped a couple chapters between last week and this week to stay on this topic of wealth, and then we'll jump back into some earlier chapters in, uh, um, uh, next week and go at some other topics. But um, what we're doing these two weeks is we're learning uh, that when it comes to money and wealth, the the people of the world have a certain way of relating to their wealth. Uh, And then there's the way of Jesus. And it's quite different, actually. And Jesus is inviting us into a very different relationship um, with our money and with our things. And I'm arguing it's one that's actually very life-giving and a very joy-producing relationship. Last week, uh, we looked at one of Jesus' uh, famous statements about money where he says this, Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And I argued, he's just making a practical statement. He's saying, this is, this is not a spiritual statement. This is just true. It is simply true that, that true life, joy, happiness, fulfillment, it actually doesn't come from an abundance of possessions. And all the studies would agree with them. Richer people simply aren't more happy, more deeply happy than people with less money. It's just not true. And so he invites us into this relationship with our wealth where, um, where we don't want wealth to become a god. We don't want 
our wealth to possess us. We, it's stuff we have, but it shouldn't have our hearts. And last week we looked at these two postures towards our wealth that occur when we're looking for wealth to provide something it shouldn't. We looked at greed, this desire for always having more um, and thinking that if I had more, I would be happier. And it's an illusion. We looked at the other posture of anxiety, always wondering, do I have enough? Will it be there? And we're looking to to provide our security. And it, it shouldn't be that. God should be the thing that brings security. And so we looked at greed and anxiety, these two postures where we're looking for wealth to do something it was never intended to do. Jesus says, it's not a God. Don't let it be a God. It's just stuff. It's really, it's, it's just stuff. You can't take it anywhere with you in eternity. It's temporary. It's just stuff. It's there. It's God's. And he's given it to you to bless you. And the posture that we were invited into last week instead of greed or anxiety was this posture of open-handed generosity. It's just stuff. It's God's anyways. He's given it to me. And I have the opportunity to use it to provide for myself, my family, and to provide for those around me, to bless and serve and love other people. That's the posture that Jesus calls us into. Uh, I, I challenged you to sell a possession and give the money away, or you could just give a possession directly. I don't know if any of you took me up on that. I hope some of you did. Um, if you didn't, um, you have an opportunity this week to do that again. There happens to be a rummage sale. You can give it away and then buy it right back, you know, and um, <laughs> help kids go on mission trips at Grace. Um, there's many ways you can do this. So today we look at this parable. Uh, it's an incredibly bizarre, of course, parable about this uh, manager who is dishonest and takes advantage of his master's money and kind of puts his master in an awkward position so that he can secure his own future. And uh, Jesus says, so you should be like that. Use wealth to gain friends, just like this guy did. And I want to talk through that and figure out what is he talking about. And what I would argue is really that the the parable is all about open-handed generosity with someone else's stuff. (laughs) That the... the, (laughs) That's really what it's about. And I think if we can understand that, we'll realize that's Jesus' posture about wealth. That's what we're being invited to do. Open-handed generosity with somebody else's stuff for the sake of the kingdom. So let's, let's talk through this parable together, and hopefully it'll make sense as we go. Uh, so you got verse 1. You got two people, right? There was a rich man, and there's a manager, right? So first you've got a rich guy. And uh, let's say he's similar to the rich guy we looked at last week. Remember the rich guy who had this bumper crop and then he built bigger barns to store his stuff. So let's assume this rich guy is similar. In the first century, there's almost no middle class. You basically have people who own land and people who do not, right? So you have wealthy landowners uh, and then the people that work for them or the people that are indebted to them. Uh, This guy has lots of land. We can assume, uh, and he has, uh, he's a creditor, right? And he's got some people that owe him money. You, you find, you know, in what they owe him, you can kind of get a sense of his land. Like in verse 6, someone owes him, in my translation, it says 900 gallons of olive oil. Um, in verse 7, someone owes him 1,000 bushels of wheat. So we can assume this guy has a lot of land, and there are olive groves on the land. There's a, a wheat farm, you know, there's wheat fields on his land. Um, and he's got all these people who are working for him, of course, on his land. Uh, and that brings us to the, the main character, which is his manager, this person who he has entrusted to manage his, his land, manage his business, um, a steward, a manager, whatever you want to call him. Uh, in the first century, this manager could be uh, an enslaved person who is 
who's the, who's the master's slave, or he could be a freed person. Either way, that's a possibility in the first century. Um, but either way, he actually has a fairly enviable status in the first century. Oh, that's still up there. Sorry. Um, uh, he would have an enviable status in that, in that role. He uh, has a significant job, of course. He's managing significant resources. Uh, he would live on the master's property, and it's a nice property. Uh, he has comforts that go with that. Um, so he's got, a, he's got a pretty good setup in the first century. And so the issue uh, in verse 1 and 2 where he's been accused of wasting his, the, his manager's his master's possessions, I, I think we can assume he has wasted them based on what we learn about this guy. Probably not just accused, probably guilty of this. Uh, and then he's going to be called to account and kicked out. That would represent a profound crisis in this man's life, okay? He's going to lose his job, of course, but he's also going to lose his home. He's going to be kicked out of this home. He'll be out on the streets. Uh, back then, you're not, you know, collecting unemployment or anything like that. There's really, there's nothing, there's no safety net in that day. So his social status is gone. So profound, like, life-altering crisis in his life. So when he comes up with a way to deal with that, and before we look at his plan, I, I just want to, you know, I've kind of already alluded to this, but I want you to ask yourself, like, how do you feel about this guy? Um, how do you feel about this manager? Do you like him? Do you not like him? Why uh, each way? Um, Jesus is telling us we should be like this guy in some way, it seems to me. Um, I'll just throw my, my hat in the ring. I don't like this guy at all. <laughs> uh, I don't think he's a good guy. I don't think we're supposed to see him necessarily as a good guy. I don't think Jesus thinks he's a particularly good guy, which is what makes the story a bit strange. But let's just kind of, let's just think about who this guy is. Verse one, he's accused of wasting his master's possessions. Let's assume that's true. So he is either um, irresponsible or he's incompetent or maybe a little bit of both, right? Um, That's what we know about him. Uh, And then his self-talk, I think is really interesting. In verse three, when he finds out what's gonna happen, the manager says to himself, Uh, What do I do now? My master's taking away my job. And listen to him describe himself. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Okay, so this guy is, he's maybe physically weak or he's lazy. He's also really proud. He's not willing to put himself in a place where he's having to to beg. So he's weak and proud. (laughs) That's not a great combination. Uh, And then his plan, you know, in verse 5 through 7, is pretty self-centered, right? He basically totally takes advantage of his master, screws his master over, uses his master money to do something that will advantage him in the end, gain some friends so that he'll, you know, secure his future. And if there was any, like, if you're wondering if we're supposed to, is this guy an upstanding guy or not? Jesus just tells us plainly in verse 8, the master commended the, what kind of manager is he? The dishonest. This guy is dishonest. He is unrighteous, okay? So all that to say, not a great guy. I don't think Jesus loves this guy. We're not being encouraged to be like this guy in every way. Um, We are being encouraged to be like him in one single way. He has one quality that Jesus is saying, you should have this quality. And that understanding what that is, is then I think the key to understanding this bizarre parable. And what is he? What What is the one thing he is that Jesus says you should be like this? What's the word? Shrewd, right? Verse 8. He is commended because he acts shrewdly. Uh, I had to look up shrewd myself. Um, I still associate that word with the word shrew from the taming of the shrew. You know, so I had to like kind of get that, separate those things. Um, But being shrewd is being clever, right? 
It's being smart, um, industrious. We might say it's being street smart. A shrewd person is street smart. Uh, and this guy, for all of his uh, inadequacies, he is shrewd. And he comes up with this plan that is very shrewd. So let's just kind of, you know, let me just talk you through the plan, right? Verse 4, I know what I'll do, he says, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. He said, I've got this plan. And he realizes the situation. And he's thinking, I have a very short time, right? Between this moment and when I'm going to be called to give an account. He might have a day or two. He's going to have to give an account. At that time, the money's going to run out. I'm going to give an account. I'm going to be kicked out of the house, right? But for that short time, I still have my master's money. I'm still in charge of the money. So what I can do is I can use my master's money to gain friends for myself so that when I get kicked out on the streets, I'll have friends who will then welcome me into their homes and I'll have a place to stay. I won't be put out on the streets. That's his plan, right? So he embarks on this plan uh, in verse 5 through 7, which is a plan of debt reduction for his master's uh, debtors, right? Uh, And it's considerable. You know, my translation again to the person who owns, uh, who owes olive oil, they owe 900. He drops that to 450. So he cuts their debt in half. Massive debt. Master's not going to be happy about that, right? But huge, very generous <laughs> with someone else's stuff. Uh, then you have the wheat. Again, mine has 1,000. And he says make it 800. So 20% debt reduction. Cutting people's debts. And my guess is these, these people have no idea what's about to happen to the manager, right? Like, they don't know he's about to lose his job. They're just thinking, well, this, is, this guy's awesome. I don't know why he's doing this, but great, we'll take it. Um, and in the first century, especially in the Greco-Roman world, there was this huge value of reciprocity, that that's how friendships worked and how relationships worked. So like if you, you know, if you gave a favor to somebody, there was a, there was a cultural obligation to repay the, the favor. You know, you, I scratch your back, now you scratch mine. We still have that, but it was even more so back in that day. So these people, these debtors would absolutely feel an obligation to, to extend the favor back to this guy if they ever could. And I would imagine they'd be happy to do that because of what he did for him. He did this amazingly generous thing so that they're going to, when he's out on the street, they're going to feel obligated and they'll probably feel like they want to help this guy out and they will invite him into their home. So he has this plan. It's shrewd. He goes after the plan and the plan will absolutely work. Culturally speaking, his plan is going to work. Uh, he's taken advantage of a moment to gain friends for himself to secure his future, right? Uh, and, and then verse 8 says, the master finds out about this, right? And it says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. So when he says he commended him, I don't think that means the master is particularly happy about what happened, right? He's just lost a ton of money. I don't think he's stoked about what's happened, but I think in commending him, the master saying, I can appreciate what you just did. I can appreciate the shrewdness of your plan because I'm a businessman. I know what it's like to see an opportunity, to see a window of time, and to go after something, to get creative and, and shrewd and, and to make the most of an opportunity. I can get that. And you did that. You know, I commend you for that. Good on you. Touche, he would say. You're still kicked out, but touche, you know. <laughs> I think that's kind of the, the, the tone of what this guy would have. And that's where the parable ends. <laughs> okay? That's the end of the parable. And then we get a, a, 
a, a verse and a half of Jesus' comment on the parable. What is the point of this bizarre parable, Jesus? Well, let's take a look. Verse 9. So he's told us this story. And then he says, so in light of that, now I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. <laughs> So that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So let me just put that up here. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. So that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal homes. Now let me switch a couple words here and just say, this is exactly what the manager just did, right? What Jesus is telling us to do is precisely the way the story went. He used someone else's wealth. It wasn't his own, but he used someone else's wealth to gain friends for himself so that when the wealth was gone, he would be welcomed into, and I'm just going to add that little word, non-eternal homes. He'd be welcomed into earthly homes, right? So Jesus is saying, I want you to do the exact same thing with one change. And the change is from non-eternal to eternal homes, right? Now you use worldly wealth, someone else's wealth, by the way, it's God's, to gain friends so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal homes. So what he's saying is um, your situation is actually exactly like this manager's situation if you can see it from an eternal perspective, okay? Some of you may still be a little bit confused, right? I want, you to, I want people to welcome you into e- homes in eternity, not in this life. So let me, diagrams are always helpful for me. Maybe you've already figured this out. I'm still trying to figure this out even as I'm saying it. So here's the manager's situation, right? There's a point in time in his life, we'll call it now, and what he's learned is this. He has a very small window of time between now and when he gives an account and the money's going to run out and he's going to be kicked out of the house and then he's got the rest of his life to deal with, right? That's his situation, And so what does he do? Well, he comes up with this shrewd plan, and here's the plan. He is going to invest in people in this little window of time. He's going to use somebody else's money to invest in people, to to help them, so that for the rest of his life, they will welcome him. When that little window runs out, they'll welcome him into their homes, right? And he'll be taken care of for the rest of his life. And Jesus is saying, that's what I want you to do. And that is precisely the situation you're in, but from an eternal perspective. And here it is. So this is us, right? Point in time now. And we have this really narrow window of time that we call the rest of our lives here. And then we're going to die. And when we die, we will give an account for how we lived our lives. And it doesn't matter how rich we are. At that moment, the money is going to run out, okay? Whatever you have will be gone. And it is a small window of time. And then you have the rest of eternity. Eternal is his word change. The rest of uh, of eternity to, to deal with. So what do you do in light of the fact that that is every human being's reality, right? The manager's reality is yours just from an eternal perspective. Well, Jesus is saying, I want you to do precisely the same thing. I want you, uh uh-oh, I've lost my control here. Something happened back there? (laughs) That's better than no, actually. Oh, I was just coming to the big point. That's okay, we don't need it. Was it a, okay, we'll, 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 we'll let it go. Picture that, okay? <laughs> what do you do in that little window that's called your life? You invest in people. 
You use somebody else's wealth to invest in people so that when it runs out and when you die, when you come to eternity, there will be all these people welcoming you into their eternal homes. Now, the the analogy breaks down, not that we actually, like, you're out on the streets until these people welcome you into eternal homes. I think he's saying, generally speaking, when you come to eternity, there will be all these people welcoming you there with open arms because of the fact that you used the master's wealth in this life to bless them, to provide for them, to care for them, to influence them for God's kingdom so that they're there ahead of you going, welcome into eternity. We're so glad to see you because you made such an impact on us through the way you used your money, which was actually God's money in the end. Does that make sense? So the people there, let's just, I mean, let's just get like tangible. Use your wealth in this life so that when you enter in the new life, you have, for instance, your neighbor is there in heaven welcoming you and saying, thank you so much. Like you, you brought me into your home. You used your home as a, your home was a very safe space for me. You brought me in. You shared meals with me. There was that time when I was going through a rough patch, my marriage. You brought me in and, and you were just a safe space for me. Thank you for how you did that. Or it could be, I mean, it could be someone on the other end of the world. It could be a, 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 a Fijian, right? Who says, hey, you don't even know this. But you gave money to something that helped. I met this kindergarten teacher in my local you know, village, and I got taught the basics of, of math and English, and I, I met Jesus in that. And you don't even know this, but your money impacted me. You're part of the reason I'm here right now. It's so good to see you. Or we can think of like a Northrise student. So you, you sponsored my three years of 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 education, of college education, so that I could develop these skills and, I, and, and come to know Jesus better, impact my country. It is so good to see you. That is, I think, what Jesus is saying. Pretty cool? So it's this, this idea of, of investing in people now to make an eternal impact on them. Um, and there's one other thing I want to say. Look at verse 8 again. That parable ends, the master commanded the dishonest manager because he acted surely. That's where the parable ends. And then here's Jesus' point. Very interesting phrase. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, what does that mean? I think he's saying this. You know, people in this world... They know how to be shrewd. People know how to see an opportunity in this life. And let's just think in terms of professional life or the business world. People know how to see an opportunity and take advantage of the opportunity to gain money or to influence people, to, to, see, to make the most of opportunities. People know how to do that in this world. And Jesus is kind of grieving. He's kind of saying, I wish the people of light, I wish God's children were as shrewd in dealing with their, their stuff as the people of this world. I wish God's children would see the opportunities that are out there to impact people for eternity and were strategic and creative and thoughtful and as industrious as the people of this world are. And I think many of us relate to that. We're like, you know, in our professional lives, we're, you know, we're, we're strategic, we're creative, we're passionate, we know how to go after things. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, then we become like passive or just uncreative or, or lazy or whatever. And Jesus like, I want you to bring all that same creative, strategic 
take advantage, make the most of opportunities into your lives and your spiritual life. You can impact people for all eternity with God's stuff right now. What would it look like to get creative on those levels, to get passionate about those levels, about those things? All that to say, it really is a parable about open-handed generosity, and I want to add the word shrewd open-handed, strategic, creative, open-handed generosity, having fun with God's stuff strategically to impact people for all eternity. Oh, no signal, exclamation point. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Stop yelling at me. So um, let's think about this for a second. I mean, what I want, I want to end by just, you know, spurring some thoughts about this, and then I want to share a couple stories from within our own, our own community, all right? Um, so let's just think, like, let's start with our possessions, things that you own, things, stuff, physical stuff that you have. What would it look like to realize it's just stuff? Like, it's not, and it's, ultimately, it's not even mine. It's somebody else's stuff. It's God's stuff. He can take it away as quickly as he gave it to me. It's someone else's stuff that I've been entrusted with, How can I use this strategically, shrewdly, to love people and bless people and make an impact on them for God's kingdom? So, I mean, for most of us, the biggest thing we have is a home, right? We might own a home. We might rent a place. Um, But think about your home. What are the opportunities of of this physical possession you have? What would it look like to get strategic as a way of impacting and loving and blessing people? So an obvious one is, is hospitality, to say we've got this home and we have this opportunity to bring people into this home, to use it to bless people, to create meals for people, and to create a safe physical space and then hopefully a safe relational space where people can be themselves, we'll have, ask good questions, we just invite people in. This home is a great opportunity to bless people. Or maybe those of you that have children, it's like, hey, our children have friends and some of those friends come from really broken families. But this home can be a second home for them. And, and we can be kind of second parents for these kids that have it really hard, right? Or maybe you're like, this home can be a place where God's word is, is spoken. I want to I host Bible studies and small groups in my home. Um, my folks are here. They're usually at first service today, but they're second service. But um, I grew up uh, in a home that had what we called the bonus room. Um, and it was just a second, some of you had this model home, but it had sort of this bonus room. It was kind of its own little place. Didn't have a kitchen and all that, but had own space. And I grew up through my, my elementary and, and early high school years, there was always someone living in the bonus room, uh, often for free. And sometimes there were missionaries or there were uh, youth uh, pastors at our church. And so I have all these memories of these like 20 to 25-year-old single people um, that just became part of the family for, you know, six months to a year. And it was such a, I mean, for me, it's like when you're seven, there's nothing cooler than a 25-year-old guy. You know, it's like the coolest thing. Um, but that was a way that, that they used the home, used the physical possession to, to bless people. Some of you have second homes. That there's, an, there's an opportunity with those homes to bless marriages, to bless people, Right? Um, and we could talk about all sorts of possessions. You, you name it. Some of the possessions we have with our hobbies um, can be used to bless people. Your golf clubs can bless people by providing relationship, right? And connecting with other people. Your wine collections can even bless people. And you can use those to foster community. You can get real creative in just about anything. You can see it as a resource to bless people. 
Uh, there's, I think one last thing on the possessions piece is um, there are some possessions we realize we just don't need, right? We got these garages full of things sitting around. And what that is, is just opportunity costs, right? Those are just missed opportunities. Like you're not using it, sell it, give the money away or give the, give the possession directly to somebody else. And it's fun as a pastor here, I, I get, I'm privy to how some of you um, will give things to one another anonymously through the church. So pe- cars have gone from one family to another, and this family has no idea who, what family gave the car, but they you know, say, hey, we want to give this anonymously. And so there's beautiful ways you can, you can do that. So possessions is a way. And then, um, and then I think just thinking about our money, it's the, actually our, our liquid <laughs> assets to consider what would it look like to be strategic with those. And for me, I think of that in terms of two categories. One is to think in terms of like specific people to say, we want to have, we want to have money set aside for specific people in our lives that we, we might encounter. Like as we're living our lives in this church or in our, in our neighborhood, that there are people that we know who are in need and we have the ability to, in moments that we weren't planning on, it's not part of like a monthly gift, but we can just, you know, hey, we want to we meet this need for you. And that can be as simple as taking a person out to lunch, paying for lunch, or it can be paying for rent for a couple months. Again, we have money passed from person to person in this church sometimes. A person will hear about a need, they'll give it to the church, and then there's an anonymous gift. You do not get a tax deduction for that kind of giving, by the way. That wouldn't be ethical for us as a church, but it's a way to be anonymous. Um, so there's, So I think it's... Having a, having a category in your finances that is, this is, in case we encounter someone in need, we can give very specifically, personally, tangibly. And then the other category that I think of is more in terms of the regular giving to, um, to causes and to organizations, right? And what I love about organizations is um, organizations can be shrewd for us. Like some of us, like, hey, I don't have the time to get shrewd and to think creatively about how to impact Africa, you know, or how to impact the, the, those experiencing homelessness in Costa Mesa. But there are organizations who do that really well. They're very strategic. They're very thoughtful. And so I can give to them and I can be shrewd through giving to them. And, and I think it's, as you think, whether you're an, an individual or you're married, as you think about kind of how, how, what I give to, I think it's helpful just to think about the different kinds of organizations out there and how um, they, they each have a different value that is all good and figure out what has God called us to. Um, so like Fiji Kindy, right? Or Northrise, I've mentioned. But that there's a huge value for education. Those are, those are providing education, Christ-centered education. And some of you, like education was a big deal for you. Like you value education. So there's, there's a ministry that's close to your heart. Um, or you have something like the Jesus film that is just straight evangelism. We want people to hear the message of the gospel. And that's a, that's, that's a different thing that many of you, your hearts will be stirred for. Or we have organizations like International Justice Mission. It's all about justice and, and holding criminals accountable, you know, trying to help end slavery, sex trafficking in other nations. Some of you, justice is a, is a core theme. Some of you, the, the poor and the needy is a big one. We're doing this huge Venezuela push right now, right? Uh, giving children hope. And that, that's really providing very just physical, tangible needs to people experiencing a huge level of trauma and poverty. So there's, there's all these different organizations. And I think it's so fun to sit down as a couple or by yourself and go like, 
Like, what do we get inspired about? Like, what is our story? What are our gifts? What has God done in us? And how would that maybe inform where we should give? Because the reality is God has given Dave Gunlock a certain amount of money. And a question I need to ask is, why did he give Dave Gunlock this money and not someone else this money? Well, I have certain passions and certain experiences that will probably inform where it makes sense for me to give, where I get excited to give. And, and I think this, that's what this is so much about is like getting excited about this. Um, it's not our money anyways, right? We get to give away God's money. Like that's a, that's a pretty great thing. I know none of us believe that, but that's actually theologically <laughs> true. That's theologically true. It's all his. And we were talking about this as a staff a couple weeks ago. And Mark made this comment. He, he was like, I, if I could have my dream job, I would work for a, a, a wealthy foundation where I just get to give away other people's money. You know, I get to meet with these organizations, decide where the money's going to go to. And theologically, that's actually what we all get to do. I mean, we, we get to give away someone else's money. <laughs> and we do it strategically, not carelessly, not selfishly, but strategically, thoughtfully, to try to make an impact according to how God moves us. So that's the, that's the adventure. That's... That's the fun of this. That giving should not be a duty and obligation, but it should be this, this rich adventure of moving our own hearts towards what matters in the world. It's just stuff. It's not a God. It will fail you if you look to it to, to bring satisfaction. But as a resource, it's fantastic in terms of being able to bless people and help people. It, it comes and goes. Hold it loosely. comes into your life. Provide for what you need and then give it away and invest in eternity and people. That's the message. All right, so I'm going to close with two stories uh, from within our own uh, body here, people who are here today. Um, it's kind of weird to share your own giving stories up front, so we, we just decided to do it anonymously. But I reached out to these people. I initiated this, and they were gracious. So I want to read to you two stories. Hopefully you will find these uh, relatable and also inspiring. All right, story number one. Both come from uh, couples, married couples who both uh, have kids. Um, story number one, our journey in generosity began when we were newly married and went to an event in Keystone, Colorado. There we heard a couple share a story of their decision to live on a certain amount of income and give God the rest. God blessed them with millions and they have been faithful to this commitment for over a decade. Okay. So let's just say they, they hit that. They said, I'm just saying 200 grand. That's what we're living on. The rest has been given away ever since then. Uh, we also heard stories of people living on 50% of their income and giving half of their salary to God's work. We walked away inspired to give radically someday in the future. Uh, once we started to make more mo income, however, the culture was telling us to buy a house and nicer cars. We did those things, but it actually brought us to a place where we faced more stress about our finances and weren't able to give like we wanted to. Uh, <clears throat> for me, this is the husband speaking, Jesus' statement, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, was really impactful during that time. He doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. It's the other way around. Your heart follows where you've decided to put your treasure. I realized through that teaching years ago that I had put my treasure into a car, a really cool, fast car. And that was where my heart was. I've got to tell you, it was really hard to sell that car, but we did it, and it actually did something wonderful in my heart. It freed up my heart to desire the things of the kingdom more, and freed up our finances to give more. 
At around that same time, we committed to, the give us, uh, to giving the largest gift we had ever given, $10,000, in addition to other commits that we had made during the year. We felt that the Holy Spirit had awakened our hearts to the need for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, and our money was growing f- to further that exact need. We honored that commitment, but little did we know that would be just the beginning of much more challenging commitments. A few years later, we attended another event that challenged us to consider giving from an eternal perspective. We committed to giving a number that was high for us, but something that we could probably do if we budgeted more frugally and planned ahead to accomplish it. We went, both went to bed that night feeling a little unsettled. The next morning, the speaker, also unsettled, challenged us and many others to give not just out of our comfort zone, but to consider giving a gift that the Holy Spirit was telling us to give out of our hearts, not just with our heads. The the speaker himself gave significantly more, and the Holy Spirit awakened us to give much more than we had committed the night before. We weren't even sitting together at this event, but came up with the exact same number apart from each other, which was $30,000, that we both felt the Holy Spirit had told us to give that year. We had no idea how we were going to come up with that money. Well, God had a plan, even if we didn't. Out of the blue, we got a call and a job offer with a much higher compensation package that seemed like it might be an answer to the prayer. It was. Without that job, we wouldn't have been able to honor that commitment. After God provided this answer to prayer, we decided to double what we gave the year before. We wanted to increase this amount every year. But it is a daily struggle against the culture and against our own hearts desiring the things of this world. Some of our first world struggles are that we've put off buying a home, put off saving for retirement, and we drive cars that are over 10 years old with 200,000 miles on them. But in comparison with the joy we feel in giving in these ways, our first world problems seem insignificant. We feel like through it all, God has been faithful and has continued to bless us. God has a way of continuing to open up our hearts. We are now continually seeing ways we can invest in God's kingdom instead of creating our own kingdoms on earth. The more we store up our treasure in heaven, the easier it is to say no to the culture around us and put our minds and hearts on what God cares about. So good. Yeah. And here's story number two. Let me start by saying my wife and I are spenders. (laughs) It comes naturally to both of us, and we've always felt quite confident and gifted in it. Uh, Many marriages benefit from at least one spouse tending towards responsible fiscal behavior, but not so with us. We brought debt into the marriage and jetted off on our honeymoon excitedly with this wisdom from a friend in mind. If you don't come back from your honeymoon with a ton on your credit card, you didn't do it right. Who could argue with such wisdom? (laughs) Certainly not us. (laughs) Uh, Within several years of our marriage... uh, I was experiencing, this is the husband, I was experiencing anxiety so intense over how we would pay rent each month that it felt like the skin on my arms was burning. I would often take cash to our landlord's house two weeks late and drop it in their mailbox for fear that a check would bounce if they failed to take it directly to the bank. To say our marriage was intense at that point would be an understatement. But then a few things happened. A friend of mine was describing the type of person who, after being with them, you know they've been intimately spending time with God, and it inspires you to do the same. 
It made me sad to realize I was not that type of person. I found myself reading a passage on the fruit of the Spirit, and when assessing my life, I saw none of those fruits present. Another friend handed me a copy of Dave Ramsey's The Total Money Makeover, and the debt I'd traveled many years with quickly became both real and a problem that finally deserved attention. It was here God began transforming us. We immediately adopted extreme measures to get out of the debt. The Bible talks about debt as similar to the relationship of a slave and master, and we definitely felt enslaved. By providence, we moved out of the house we couldn't afford into a a 15-month rent-free opportunity we've never seen before and haven't seen since, and believe me, we've looked. (laughs) And we cut every corner we could find to pay off our debt. And then something completely surprising happened in the process. Not even a tenth of the way toward getting out of debt, we began to give. We recognized it and felt it at the time, but have only gained full perspective looking back. The Holy Spirit was actively causing us to give. God deepened the capacity of our hearts through taking what we were newly learning was rightfully his and giving it to others. Psalm 37 states that the wicked borrows and doesn't pay back, while the righteous is generous and gives. In that moment, we felt God's righteousness flowing through us. We ended up taking several years to complete, uh, to complete what could have happened even quicker, getting out of debt. But with the surplus of money, we found through cutting nearly everything out of our lives, God compelled us to give. We began to live and thrive on the goodness of God. We began to see need in others in a, in a way we had never seen before. We began to see in one another, with the anxiety gone, the beautiful potential to start a family. And my wife became pregnant in that rent-free house. Talk about a gift. We often read and gloss over God's promises. It's one of the tragic oversights of mankind. But God wants to give good and eternal gifts to his children. When he does, and in our case, when we loosened our grip on the things we could touch, The rewards so far and away exceed anything found in a jacket or shoes or a home or a car that we cannot help but be made totally new as humans. This remains one of the top three or four defining moments in our lives. God intervened and it was overwhelming to feel his presence, the presence he longs to give each one of us. That's so good. So those are yes. So there's the call. It's just stuff. It's not even yours. It's just stuff, but it's a great resource to invest in people, to use and bless others. So I just want to invite you to consider what are, what are the next steps that God has for you to sit this week by yourself or with your spouse if you're married and go, what, what is God calling us into? Uh, on your way out uh, through the foyer uh, under the flat screen, there, there's, there's a, p- a stack of these that, that I created. These are just like next steps. There's some just personal reflection questions, questions for you to ask uh, yourselves uh, about giving, about spending, about saving, about debt. Uh, on the back, there are some, some Bible passages that get it. You know, Jesus' take on money, some of the ones we've, we've read the last two weeks. And then I've included some reading resources, some books that you might want to read if you've never read it up on, on a biblical perspective on wealth. There's a devotional guide, like a four-week devotional to stir your heart. There's a uh, small group guide if you wanted to, like, your home group to go through, like, an eight-week adventure in generosity. 
Um, so there's a bunch of different things. And then at the end, there's a Money 101 class. And we, if any of you want to take just a basic class, like an hour and a half long class, it won't be biblical foundations. I've been covering that. It'll be very practical. What do I need to know? If, how do we get in, in control of our finances? We want to make that available to you. Uh, there's an email on this that you can email us. It's info, email, uh, it's info at gracefellowship.com fellowshipchurch.org, say, I'm interested in attending this, and we'll figure out who's interested, and then we'll schedule time. But someone in our community has offered to do that. So those are some next steps. I really would encourage you to pick up one of these before you leave. But let's pray. And um, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, think about the wealth that is represented in this room right now, and and the the amazing opportunities there are to impact uh, the world with this for for eternity. So let's, let's pray that God inspires that in us. Well, Lord, would you give us Jesus' mental map of money, Jesus' worldview of money. Help us to see it not as something that we cling to for, for significance or for security, but to just see it as stuff that's yours, um, that you give us, and, and help us to be grateful for it, to enjoy, not to feel guilty for what you've given us, but to enjoy it, to receive it with gratitude, to see it as your blessing upon us. And then help us to hold it loosely and to give it away as freely as we receive it. Help us to invest instead in people, not in things. And help us to see the needs around us. Give us your heart. Um, give us your mind, your shrewd strategic mind. And, and set us on a, a, an even deeper adventure.